Good afternoon. It is Friday, July 18th, and you've tuned in to Noon Edition. With Mary Catherine Carmichael, I'm Stan Jastrzewski. This week, we'll be addressing the issue of poverty in Monroe County. We're pleased to be joined in studio this, this week by three guests. First, Brooke Gentile, Executive Director of Bloomington Food Pantry, Mother Hubbard's Cupboard. Next, Joel Rikas, who is the Executive Director of the Shalom Community Center, which provides temporary housing to Bloomington's homeless. And finally, Jerry Conover, Director of the Indiana Business Research Center and a demographer, will ask about whom poverty affects and why. Thanks, everybody, for being here. Before we get started, it is my duty to point out there are a couple of ways you can submit your questions to our guests during the next hour. If you're near a telephone, you might want to write down these two numbers. You can call us at 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 877-285-9348. You may also email us, if that's more your speed, now or anytime really at noon at indiana.edu. I'd like to start out by asking uh, Brooke and Joel, how many people your organizations serve on a weekly basis and, and whether you've seen that number increase or decrease recently? I can start. Uh, we we see – I can do that actually a little bit better by the day. We see an average of 250 to 300 people a day um, throughout our programs and there's been an increase, um, steady increase over the last year. I, in preparation for coming down here today, I looked at our numbers for the first six months. Uh, in our hunger relief programs, we do breakfast and lunch daily among uh, the other things that we do. Uh, the number of meals we served is up 17 percent over the same period last year. And we run a family market on Friday afternoons, a place where families with children can come in and get groceries and supplies like diapers and formula. And the numbers of people that have come into that for the first six months are up 51 percent over the same period of time last year. Hmm. Brooke, are you seeing similar numbers? Um, we're, we're certainly seeing increases, not quite that high. Um, Mother Hubbard's Covered Food Pantry serves 1,550 people in need every week on average. So we're typically seeing about 120 households every day. Um, as far as increases compared to the first six months of this year compared to last year, we're up about um, 12 percent. Wow. Joel, do you mind just giving us kind of an update on the physical aspects of Shalom Center, how those have changed, uh, if they have recently, and, and kind of where you guys stand with that right now? Yes. Um, we're in our eighth year. Uh, we are a one-stop service center for people experiencing poverty and all the manifestations, particularly homelessness and hunger. Uh, we began in the basement of the First United Methodist Church, uh, the big church across from the downtown post office. And have been there right through, continue to be there, but as our programs have grown and the need for those programs has grown, we've needed additional space. Uh, we occupied uh, a building directly across the street from the church at 110 South Washington for about a year. Uh, unfortunately, it was part of the uh, sale uh, and subsequent moving from the Fine Light Corporation. There was a plan there to build their national headquarters and we as well as all the other tenants had to leave those buildings. Um, uh, from there, we actually were able to, uh, through the generosity of the First Christian Church right across the street on Kirkwood and Washington, uh, take a substantial amount of space in their basement. So we, we basically have a campus of two churches mm -hmm. across the street from each other. Uh, the Methodist Church functions as the day shelter and dining hall for our meal programs, uh, houses some of the uh, services that you would find in a typical day shelter like laundry facilities, telephones and so forth um, and obviously seats everyone for meals. Uh, across the street at the First Christian Church, um, some of the other functions of a day shelter uh, including showers, uh, mail service, telephones and voicemail boxes for people we serve, storage and that's where our social work staff is located as well. Um, so it's working reasonably well. Uh, we're still straining for space. Uh, our biggest challenge uh, right now and it will be for the foreseeable future is finding a permanent mm -hmm. location to house these programs and, and the goal is to put them all under one roof. Uh, it's a little bit more difficult in our case to, to locate a facility in that we very deliberately are downtown. We located here. Uh, in part to be uh, adjacent to the Bloomington Transit Hub. Um, now we know where they're going to be and right. that's a good thing. Yeah. So our search is really confined to that 
kind of eight-block radius mm -hmm. of the downtown area uh, to make us uh, as accessible as possible. Right. So that continues to be our, our major challenge for the future. So because you're currently located in two churches, is there a perception that you have a religious affiliation or, or do you? We don't. We're not a faith-based organization. Um, I don't think anyone really assumes that occasionally we'll get a question. But no, we, we really are just uh, uh, very grateful to both of those churches to offering up the space. Great. Thanks for clearing that up. Okay. We have a caller on the line who'd like to talk to our guests today. Chris, uh, thanks for calling into Noon Edition. Hi. I just wanted to congratulate the Shalom Center on taking the big step of having showers available, something that had been missing uh, from the local offerings, and that can go so far to help a person feel comfortable and have some dignity. And who of us can imagine going to a job interview, for example, without one? So I just wanted to offer my support and say keep up the good work. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye. Thanks, Thanks, Chris. You know, along those same lines, I think that a lot of people, um, when they are job hunting and they find themselves homeless, I think that the voicemail boxes and the, the phone system is so important. Do you want to expand on that at all? Yeah, we, we actually have had almost from our beginning uh, uh, an employment program, which includes daily job counselors. They're all volunteers from the community who come in and take a day a week uh, to work with people who are looking for employment. But... You know, we recognize uh, for so many of the people we serve uh, because they're living in poverty, some of the basic things that you and I would take for granted can be huge barriers to, to moving forward with your business. Things as simple as access to a telephone, uh, a place to craft a resume if you're going out, mm -hmm. job hunting. We do all of that on site. Uh, another big one which has become uh, a major service over the last couple to few years, particularly over the last couple of years, is addressing transportation needs. You know, we are pretty uh, pretty good at helping people get job interviews uh, set up and many of our folks uh, find some success and find jobs. But then how do you get there? So mm -hmm. we, um, we provide uh, Bloomington Transit tickets both for job interviews and for – uh, people starting new jobs will make sure that they have enough um, transportation assistance to get to and from work to that first paycheck. We also do gasoline vouchers, which is mm -hmm. becoming uh, quite a challenge on the financial side for us to maintain. But for the same reasons, um, we also provide that transportation assistance for people looking for uh, – that have medical appointments and related social service needs. But yeah, that's a – it's a big part of what we do and we try to address uh, you know, some of those areas again that most of us would take for granted but if you're living in poverty are huge. And while we're covering some of the basics, basics uh, for your organization, let's talk about where your funding comes from. Yeah, it's um, – uh, the largest part continues to be contributions from community members, which is uh, a great advantage in that it gives us some freedom in terms of how we allocate those resources. Um, each year, the percentage of our budget that comes from grants is increasing. Uh, this year, it's about 24 uh, percent. But the largest single, uh, single slice of the pie, if you will, continues to be community members. This is a very, very mm – -hmm generous community. Uh, one of the things that people like about the Shalom Center, and I certainly would too if I were um, trying to imagine where I wanted to make my charitable contributions, is 90 cents on every dollar goes directly into programs. Uh, and that's a very, very good ratio to administrative costs. Mm -hmm. So, uh, But yeah, that, that's where we are right now. I mean, the challenge for all of us in the nonprofit sector is to uh, try to continue to respond to the increasing needs while government funding, for example, has remained flat at best over the last several years. So that's a real challenge. Uh, in our case here in Bloomington, I think all of us are pretty fortunate because of the generosity of of our community. But uh, that continues to be a concern is, is how much can a con community uh, support uh, over the long haul. Mm -hmm. Especially when all the members of the community are suffering from the same uh, kinds of challenges as far as I, just the last time I went to the grocery store. It seemed like every single thing I bought had, had gone up since the last time I bought it. Exactly. Jerry, do you want to address that um, as kind of your economist background, how the, the trickle-down trickle, trickle effect happens in a community? Um, you mean in terms of the funding of the organizations mm -hmm. and uh, – well – 
Charitable giving is something that uh, fluctuates with economic times, but uh, uh, it's it's clearly a key foundation for many organizations in the community. And uh, it's as Joel was saying, when we've got costs of providing these services rising dramatically, uh, whether it's for food or fuel or uh, those kinds of things, at the same time that uh, revenues from government sources are are not keeping pace then there's all the more need for the community members to step in and, and help. And yet those community members are feeling more of a pinch. We've heard from uh, both Brooke and Joel about the increase in numbers of people seeking their services mm-hmm. over the past year. And I think we see this going on around the nation that uh, more people who used to feel moderately comfortable economically are feeling strained as costs of fuel and, and the rising costs of food and, and things that ripple through the whole economy uh, cause them to have to spend more of their budget on necessities. When you think about fuel costs, for example, you know, four dollar plus per gallon prices doesn't affect just the cost of uh, of getting to and from work or picking up the kids from school and you know getting around town, but also that petroleum cost is figured into so many of the other things that we use daily and don't think about related to petroleum, like plastic items. Most of that is derived from petroleum. A lot of chemicals that are used in so many different industries and in so many products, uh, pharmaceuticals, for example, come from petroleum as a key ingredient. Uh, It drives the cost of energy that we all use both at homes and workplaces and entertainment places. So when you look at all that together, our costs are going up. uh, Inflation uh, figures just this past week have reached uh, the highest level in 17 years, I believe, for uh, wait a minute, say that again. Just this, the monthly inflation figure that came out uh, just a couple of days ago was the highest level in 17 years in terms of monthly rise in uh, cost of living, essentially, if you will. Wow. Um, which takes us back to the beginning of the last major recession in the country, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean, a major one, if you don't count the one at the in 2001 era that was very short-lived and it was over before we had officially recognized it happened. Uh, But, uh, you know, this is a time when a lot of people are finding they have to cut back in many areas. I want to talk for a second about the the language that that goes – that surrounds poverty. Is there – is there a better word than than saying that someone is is poor? I mean is there something that that – people in general should should start making this sort of sea change about how they talk about it and, and use that as a jumping off point to doing things about it? I think that's a, an, an excellent question. Um, I think living in poverty, folks who are experiencing poverty is probably a better way to characterize that. Um, we've put a great deal of care into the language around homelessness, for example. Um, very early on in this country, about the middle part of the 1980s when homelessness first emerged as a major social issue, we almost immediately began to refer uh, to folks as the homeless. Um, makes perfect sense. We're Americans. We have a short attention span. We need to categorize things very quickly, put it in a box up on the shelf so we can understand it and it's dealt with. Uh, but in fact, I mean, people experiencing homelessness are individuals just like you and I with their own histories, their own hopes and dreams for the future and, and very different uh, in every way. So we, we uh, from our opening, really started to talk about homelessness in that way rather than the homeless mm-hmm. people experiencing homelessness. And I think in general, applying that to the, the larger issue of poverty is is a positive thing. What about, is there a... Are, are there stigmas that are still attached to some of these words that prevent people from perhaps seeking the help that they might need? Are, are people reticent to say, I am, I am homeless, I am poor, things like that, and, and that keeps them from, from moving ahead in some way? I would say certainly we have folks who have never before needed to access services um, who are typically, let's even say middle class, who are now feeling this – the economic downturn and have a hard time coming to get food because they don't necessarily consider themselves poor when, you know, you look at their household income and you look at the folks that we're serving and they're right there in that same group. Um, so I think it is very hard and I think that one of the things that the cupboard does and Shalom and many other agencies in town is um, 
we try to advocate for addressing these symptoms of poverty. Mm -hmm. We work on alleviating the effects of hunger. Um, and Shalom works on alleviating the effects of homelessness um, and empowering folks to seek those services to then get, get beyond needing those services. Jerry, with respect to creating numbers about uh, homelessness, poverty, etc., do you believe that these stigmas might lead us to have less accurate numbers and therefore address the problem less accurately? Well, not in a direct sense, Stan, in that the the most widely used measures for uh, assessing poverty uh, derived from the Census Bureau, which essentially uh, doesn't ask people if they're in poverty or not. I mean, so it's not a self-report kind of thing. They're based on surveys that are conducted regularly uh, and that generate a lot of the year-to-year updates in statistics of all sorts from the Census Bureau, uh, surveys of households, and they're based essentially on income. The Census Bureau looks at the money income that people bring in from a number of sources, whether it's uh, paychecks or investments, you know, dividends and, and interest and so forth, or uh, uh, pensions, uh, you know, welfare payments, anything that's an, a cash form of money gets counted as part of that income, and, but not things that are in kind, like if they receive free food or free housing, that, that's not counted in. And they add up that income for the household and then uh, uh, compare that to numbers that have been established as a, a threshold for how much you need to make in order to be considered in poverty or not. And if you fall even just a dollar above that threshold, you're considered not in poverty. Can we talk about that for sure. a second? The Census Bureau says something like 12 or 13 percent of all Hoosiers live in poverty. Can you talk about what that means in terms of their characterization of what a poverty line is? And, and, and sure. aren't there several different definitions of poverty line, poverty threshold, depending on who you talk to? Mm-hmm. Well, yes. Um, the Census Bureau provides uh, a table each year that is updated to reflect the changes of you know, inflationary effects. Uh, but it's essentially one table of numbers that's used throughout the whole nation. So one thing to keep in mind is that it doesn't reflect differences in cost of living in different parts of the country. Here in the, the Bloomington area, Indiana, generally, cost of living is not nearly as bad as it is in many parts of the country. And yet the cost of housing is relatively high here uh, compared to many cities this size, uh, partly because of the demand that the university imposes on available rental space and things like that. But, Can I interrupt you for just yeah. a second? Now, it doesn't – it seems to me that that wouldn't be rocket science to be able to adjust um, for those kinds of, of influences. Why isn't that done? Well, it's it's a lot more work to do. It's, it's not mm-hmm. difficult work necessarily but it's time-consuming and, and labor-intensive and it would be expensive to compile usable data at the level of individual communities – uh, which is really where cost of living takes place, right. you know, not state level or right. regional level, uh, on what it costs to live here versus some other county in Indiana mm-hmm. or some other city, you know, in the in the nation. But to get back to Stan's question about, you know, what is the uh, the what are those thresholds in Indiana? And and you were right. The if you look at the Census Bureau tabulations of how many pe- people in Indiana live in poverty, the number uh, for the most recent detailed data was twelve point two percent. That's almost three-quarters of a million Hoosiers, by the way. And to put it in some perspective, for Monroe County, the figure is 22.2 percent. That's the highest rate in the whole state out of 92 counties with, by this number, almost 24,000 Monroe County residents living in poverty. Now, let me come back to that number in a minute because I think it's not – you shouldn't take it at face value. Uh, And, you know, a lot of eyebrows get raised when you say we have the worst poverty rate in the state and one of the higher ones in the nation for communities this size. But what does that mean? Well, it depends. The the way the the government defines uh, poverty level, it's based on household size and the number of related people living together. So if you have like roommates sharing an apartment or, or a house someplace that aren't related, they don't count as a family. Uh, if they lived with their own families, let's say they're college students, they they would be counted with that family. But if they're living on their own, they're counted as individuals. So one person uh, by the 2006 poverty thresholds from the Census Bureau would have to make $10,488 if it was somebody under 65 to – or if they made more than that, they would not be in poverty. $10,000 doesn't go very far even for one person but anything below that is considered in poverty. Anything above is not. 
If you go up to a two-person household, now this could be an adult with a kid or two adults, it jumps up to about $13,500, $14,000. If you go up to, let's say, a four-person household, for example, where you'd have at least one adult and one, two, or three kids, you know, it might be more than one adult, could be all adults for that matter, uh, the numbers vary from they're in the roughly the twenty and a half thousand low twenty one thousand range, depending on how many kids are involved. Um, so twenty thousand dollars for a household of four people, a family of four people, still uh, is hard to stretch. So who decided we could live on these numbers? Well, it goes back to uh, many years ago, decades ago, when the Office of Management and Budget got involved, the federal agency that manages statistics, and the Department of Agriculture, which had figures on what the cost of food is for a family to eat a minimal level of of food of of decent quality but not going over the top, Mm -hmm. uh, and what it would cost for a basic diet to feed a family of one, two, three, four, etc. And so it was driven largely by food costs. And that is one of the limitations of poverty measures in general. But um, if you take other factors into account, well, there's been some research in recent years that uh, your listeners might find of interest using a concept called economic Mm self-sufficiency. And economic self-sufficiency recognizes the limitations in poverty measures based just on income. Uh, Well, I mean, it still relies on income, but they don't look just at food costs. They look at costs related to housing, health care, transportation, child care, and other kinds of basically necessary expenses that a typical family, well, anywhere from one individual to a family of however many, would need for – to pay those costs, to pay their taxes, their income taxes and sales taxes, and to not have anything left over for savings or anything else. And the numbers depend. Uh, there was a, a study that we reported in one of our publications at my organization a couple of years back. If anybody's interested, I'd be glad to give them the, the link to it. But for Bloomington, and this was based on data from 2004, the self-sufficiency wage, if you will, or annual budget for a, a household, taking these various factors into account, uh, the rent and the transportation, one car to get to work and so forth, uh, for a couple of two adults would be about 19500 Now, that's a lot higher than even the, fa- the two-person numbers from the Census Bureau by several thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. For a single parent, depending on the age of the kids, we're talking somewhere in the twenty-nine dollars to $30,000 range. For a family of four, again, depending on the composition of kids, whether they're preschool or school age because that has effect on child care sure. and so forth. Uh, the numbers are in the, say, low 30s down to possibly as low as mid-20,000 range, de- again, depending on the kids and the kinds of costs typically associated with kids of those various age ranges. So the researchers that have developed this idea have classified dozens of different types of household composition or family composition and then figured out what the costs would be. Indiana is one of several states that this has been applied in. And it's an interesting, uh, more full-featured approach to assessing what it really costs to get by. We're not talking about you know, a, a minimum wage or a, a living wage, which again are kind of loose concepts, but what it actually costs, taking costs of, of, the, uh, of housing, costs of transportation in different areas into account. And these numbers have been calculated for quite a few of them. We need to take a break, but when we come back, I want to talk more about why Monroe County's numbers are so skewed. While we're in the break, feel free to call us. You can dial in at 855-0811 or toll free at 877-285-9348. You may also email us. Noon at indiana.edu is our address. We'll be right back on Noon Edition. You're listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home office and garage, using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2, owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. And from South Dunn Street Project, represented by Brian Lappin Real Estate, classic bungalow-inspired architecture in the Bryan Park neighborhood of Bloomington, www.southdunnstreet.info If you're a person on the go, you can take WFIU programs with you. We're podcasting. 
Podcasting is a convenient and easy way to download audio files directly to your computer. Listen anytime from your computer, iPod, or portable player. You can download podcasts of full-length programs like Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, or short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, and Movie Play and Opera Reviews. You can find out how with a visit to our website at wfiu.org. We are back on Noon Edition. We are joined this week by Brooke Gentile of Mother Hubbard's Covered, Joel Rikas from the Shalom Community Center, and Jerry Conover from the Indiana Business Research Center, who we were talking to before the break about why the numbers of poverty, those living in poverty in Monroe County, which the U.S. Census Bureau as recently as 2006 said was more than a third of Monroe County residents, are, are in fact not as accurate as they purport to be. Why is that? Well, you've pointed out that the number for 2006 was substantially higher than the number I quoted for 2005. And I should, as an aside before we get into this, note that the the data at county levels are based on a fairly small sample of households that are surveyed each year by the Census Bureau. Nationwide, they do about 3 million households. It's a huge undertaking every year to get detailed census data. But in Monroe County, we're talking about only seven or 800 households altogether in that sample. So depending on which households they hit with the survey and who participates as a result, the numbers can fluctuate a bit from year to year, more so when you're dealing with a small community. At the state level or the national level, they're pretty reliable. But that said, um, if you – I mean I'll, I'll refer back to the 05 numbers. For Monroe County, we were talking about all persons of, of any age living in poverty at 22 percent of the total county population – to look at that a little differently, think about who's in that total. We have a lot of students here uh, at the university, at Ivy Tech, uh, a lot of students who are living on small incomes, many of whom are under that federal poverty level for sure, uh, some of whom are working, some aren't. If they are, it's probably part-time, although some are full. Uh, it's probably at close to minimum wage in many cases. So we're talking about low-income people. but. Many of those, probably the majority, wouldn't be considered in poverty in that they have a modest lifestyle, hopefully, um, and they're, uh, they're getting by okay while furthering their education and preparing for higher incomes in the future. If you take out – if you look only at the poverty rate for uh, kids under 18, now this would eliminate most – almost all college students and look at the rate for people age 18 or less, the – Indiana average is 16.6 percent. Monroe County is 15.9. We're better off than the state average and we're kind of in the middle of the pack, not the highest rate in the state when you take all ages into account. And that suggests that the student numbers are skewing the, the raw percentages. To take another look at it, uh, we did a special tabulation yesterday, uh, again using these survey-based census data, uh, looking at Poverty percentages in Monroe County and the state as a whole, depending on whether the person involved is enrolled in college or not. Mm -hmm. And for Monroe County, well, for the state, 12 percent of those who are not enrolled in college are in poverty by this definition. For Monroe County, it's about 14 percent, not too different. For the state as a whole, 23 percent of those who are enrolled in college are considered in poverty by that income cutoff. For Monroe County, it's 64 percent. Two-thirds of all college students in Monroe County, based on the census data, are in poverty. If you were to ask them if they consider themselves impoverished, you know, while they would probably agree they don't make a lot of money, you know, most of them would probably live a, a modestly reasonable lifestyle and don't have expectations. Uh, well, most of them aren't supporting families, although there are many who do. And so you do have to take into account what the overall numbers don't reveal about some of those underlying details. And, and that often throws numbers off for Monroe County when uh, – look at income, for example. Uh, our household income, the median household income, you know, kind of the midpoint in the range of all those households in the county um, for 2005 was $35,728. That's the sixth lowest out of all the counties in the state, out of 92 counties. The state average, 44000 and some, is uh, – you know, we're talking $8,000 higher than Monroe County. Mm -hmm. But again, when you take many households that are comprised of students, and we're talking thousands of households here that bring those averages down, that's understandable. So uh, 
well, look at one other number I, I pulled up here, which is households receiving food stamps as another kind of measure of economic stress. For Monroe County, uh, in, this is 2007 data now, out of all the households, there were 3,724 uh, food stamp receiving households and that's about 2.9 percent of the total. Less than 3 percent of all households are, are getting food stamps. The state average is about 3.5 percent and the, the worst counties in the state, which are lots, several of the large population areas like Lake mm -hmm. County and Marion as well as some of the more rural ones, are up in the 6 percent range. So we're far better off numbers-wise in terms of how many people are tapping into food stamps. Now, whether that's because they're not thinking about doing it or they just haven't sought that kind of help or whether the need is really lower is debatable. One of the great ironies in this country is while we talk about the prevalence of hunger everywhere, including here in Indiana and in Monroe County, the federal food stamp program continues to be under-enrolled. Isn't that interesting? And there's a lot of different reasons for that. Um, just following up, I, I think Jerry's uh, research is fascinating. But I think even – to me, the important point is even when you adjust for the presence of the university, I think clearly Monroe County does historically and continuing to this day have one of the highest poverty rates in this state. And you know, there, I think your original question maybe was around what are some of the factors uh, there. I mean clearly uh, the cost of housing. Um, mm -hmm. There are national groups, uh, one in particular that I'm thinking of called the National Ho uh, Low-Income Housing Coalition that every two years does a study of all 50 states uh, on housing affordability and uh, they include the largest communities in each state and for Bloomington, uh, the last study released which was in 2007 reported that um, – a household would have to be earning, I think it's twelve eighty three an hour to afford the median priced rental unit mm -hmm. in Bloomington. Um, so right away, some red flags come up for those of us that work on the front lines every day. Much of our employment here is in the service sector. It's part time. It's without benefits. Um, the cost of living isn't matching up with with income levels, and that's certainly accounting for the pressures on programs like ours and Brooks. Um, so that's that's certainly an area too where the university has an impact. Um, and, housing. A, and another double-edged sword because if you can't afford to live in town, it's often less expensive to live farther out in the county, which then drives up your transportation costs. You're farther away from goods and services. Um, you know, it, it, it just it's kind of a, a snowball right. effect, I guess. Um, Brooke, I had a, I wanted to follow up with you on this issue of food stamps. Um, you're a food pantry, mm -hmm. so you don't require any kind of food stamps, or is it just show up and and if you say you need food, we're going to help you and that. And then I also want to know the difference between a food stamp program and a, a pantry that you run. Okay. Um, we Mother Hubbard's Cupboard does operate on the honor system. So anyone that comes to our door asking for help with food, um, we have a very simple sign-in process for them, and we give them a bag for an empty bag um, for each person in their household, and then they can choose what they want off of the pantry shelves. Um, we we do have a list of guidelines to sort of help people determine if they're the type of person that would benefit from our food pantry. Um, one of those is income base, and we set that income guideline at 200% of the federal poverty level. Um, a lot of other agencies in town use that same guideline. Mm -hmm. um, we also have guidelines such as if you've lost recently lost your job, if you're homeless, if you're 55 years or older, if you're a single parent who didn't receive child support, it goes on and on. Mm -hmm. um, we try to um, have guidelines that accommodate people in a whole range of situations. We're trying to help people get to a better, more sustainable place um, in a time of uh, maybe acute need or maybe long-term need. There are many people that come to us that are living with uh, different types of illnesses mm -hmm. or have high ongoing medical costs in their household with maybe no benefits. Mm -hmm. And um, we getting help with food, you know, $50 a week um, really helps offset those costs. Do you ever say, hey, I think you might be a good candidate for food stamps? 
Um, we don't have caseworkers at Mother Hubbard's Cupboard. We do have lots of information about the food stamp program. Uh, so we, we constantly have information and applications available and have sort of more unofficial conversations with people. Here's the application. Um, did you follow up on that? Did it come through for you? Um, there know. Um, there have been recent changes at the state level with how the food stamp program is administered. Um, that happened earlier this <coughs> spring. And um, with those changes, it's sometimes a lot more difficult for folks to have those food stamps come through for them. Um, and so we have an intricate referral system to point people in the right direction to, okay, follow up with this application, get in touch with Indiana Legal Services and have them help you out with this because they actually have the resources to follow through in the connections to have changes made to people's accounts. So, If I can add a couple things to that. Um, at the Shalom Center, because we do have uh, a program, casework staff, we try to assess uh, everyone's eligibility for a variety of programs that might benefit them in the long haul, including the, the federal food stamp program. I mean, you know, clearly uh, any hunger relief program has two goals. One is to meet that immediate need. Let's get food to this family today. Uh, but long-term is to help improve their food security. And there's a number of programs, including the federal food stamp program, that can help there. Um, the second point is, is uh, a larger one. Uh, the better hunger relief programs in this country, and Brooke operates one of them here locally, uh, and this relates back to the, an early question about stigma, I think. Um, understand how difficult it is for anyone to come in and ask for assistance. So uh, we make the assumption that if somebody is here, they need to be here and we want to make the process as simple as possible, um, as dignified as possible to try to encourage people to come in when they need to. And again, I'm happy to say here in Bloomington, uh, I think the majority of the programs that do hunger relief operate in that way. But that is a key barrier oftentimes is the um, – whether it's perceived or real, the, the stigma that is associated with having to come forward and, and ask for help, particularly these days I think as we're seeing with the um, – with more and more people struggling that historically have not had to use safety net programs now being forced to. So it's very important to streamline that, streamline that process as much as possible. Brooke, I wanted to ask you about students. So whether you know, we talked just a second ago about how students are, are sort of hard to compensate for in some of these numbers. But nonetheless, the, the fact remains they are dealing with in, in many cases uh, a small amount of money uh, or disposable income of any kind um, on a yearly basis. I'm wondering, do you see any students um, during the year? We see a handful of students every now and then. Um, it, it's definitely not a significant part of our client base. Um, more often, we have students that come and volunteer for us. We have an extensive volunteer program, and while they might say, while they're there volunteering for the first time, hey, I qualify, mm -hmm. they, they don't shop. Um, they go back to their dorm and use their, their food program, the cafeteria program or whatever. Um, maybe they take an extra loaf of bread with them when they go. Um, but by and large, students are a force of volunteering for us. I'm glad you mentioned mm -hmm. volunteering because that was something I meant to ask uh, everybody is, have we seen greater numbers of volunteers uh, at, at your organizations, especially as we've seen the economic downturn recently? Um, I'm a New England native. I've been here for eight years now, really coinciding with the, the um, opening of the Shalom Center. And one of the things that impressed me from day one and continues to impress me is this, again, is one of the more generous communities I have ever uh, observed, lived in and worked in. Um, particularly crucial for the nonprofit social service sector. In our case, uh, we have a very small professional staff. We do a large part of what we do every day with volunteers. Last year, we had over 1,200 different volunteers who contributed a little over 13,000 hours of volunteer service. And I haven't seen any particular change one way or the other with this economic downturn. It, it's um, continued to be a very strong uh, community for volunteerism. 
Brooke, what about you? What have you seen? I would say likewise. Um, we have a, a smaller volunteer base. We have about um, three to 400 volunteers come through in any given year. Um, but about 95 of those are regular volunteers volunteering every week the same shift. And 85% of those volunteers are also food pantry patrons. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we've seen just in the past six months, we've seen so many new clients coming to us looking for food assistance, maybe that have never had to seek um, these types of services before. And before they even shop, they say, how can I volunteer? Mm. I, I have never had to ask for help before, and I want to give back. I can, and when, how do I sign up? And can I be here every Monday? Um, and, and that's a general trend in the past few months. Jerry, is there an issue of, of the haves and the have-nots, especially in a community like this where you've got a university who employs that employs a number of people who make six-figure salaries and then you've got a, a great number of people uh, who are still uh, living in poverty. Uh, do we see that, that there are certain you know, income brackets or, or, or any sort of other demographic groups that do help more than others or, or don't help more than others? Uh, I mean do, do the people who have enough feel that they have – so much that they give back or is it more that it's the students who are scraping by themselves, for instance, and feel perhaps akin to the people they're helping that, that, that do more? Do we have any sort of numbers on that? Um, probably some of each. Not any hard numbers that I'm aware of, uh, at least at the local level regarding the contributions to helping, especially in the sense of volunteering, for example. And I think Joel and Brooke could probably – you know, address that a little bit more, as Brooke was just pointing out. But uh, certainly, in general, charitable giving does increase significantly as income rises, and yet there's a pretty broad pattern of, of donating to charitable causes at all income levels, including quite a bit from people who you think wouldn't have any dollars to spare uh, because they appreciate the services that uh, those organizations are providing. Uh, it may not be a lot of dollars, but to them, it's probably a meaningful chunk of the total. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, I would guess that the folks at the highest end of the income spectrum probably could afford to give more than they do in many cases. Yet, there, I mean, there are certainly some very generous individuals and households out there, but there are probably a lot more who maybe haven't recognized the level of need that they could help support to a greater extent. And that uh, suggests maybe some potential for... Uh, more effectively getting the message out in the community about what these needs are. I know uh, some years back I was involved in an organization, a rotary club in another state where I was living, where we uh, regularly – we took one week a month and and volunteered. All the members helped out uh, different weeks um, at the local food bank and uh, food kitchen. And it was a very – a very eye-opening experience for for many of the members to see, uh, you know, what this level of need was in their own community. That before starting that program, they hadn't been as aware. I mean, people talk about it, but it's just kind of words, you know, until you're you're there in person. And at the same time, it was a very rewarding experience. You know, many of them said it was, uh, you know, really something they enjoyed and looked forward to going back doing to doing each each month. If we had more of that kind of thing to encourage people who have comfortable livings to get involved in volunteering, even if it's just a little at a time with organizations that help those less fortunate members of the community, I think uh, more of us would understand kind of the the range of needs from the low to the high end of the uh, standard of living scale in the community. Can I follow up for a moment? I think um, just on the subject of charitable giving, to me the big policy issue here is uh, the proper role of government. Uh, A short time ago I read a synopsis of uh, a study that was published by the Chronicle on philanthropy and it looked at 2006 uh, in terms of philanthropic contributions in this country. Over $300 billion for 2006, far and away the largest uh, in the world, uh, which is very, very impressive. Um, but by contrast, uh, in this country for the same period of time, the total tax take from local, state and federal government was about 25 percent um, in terms of our economic output comparing to the Scandinavian countries, for example, which are well known for their social welfare programs. 
they have a tax collection rate of about 50 percent. Um, and you can argue this from both sides of the fence. Many would argue that, well, the, the private sector uh, is in a better position, makes better decisions on, um, f- on charitable, uh, charitable affairs. Um, but when you look at the – where the money goes, it's actually very revealing. This – again, this is a study by the Chronicle on philanthropy um, in 2006, 44 percent those dollars went to uh, educational institutions. Another 16 percent went to medical institutions like hospitals and another 12 percent went to arts organizations. Only 5 percent of the charitable contributions that they looked at in 2006 went to nonprofit social service agencies. So while the ballet may be doing wonderfully, the food bank is still struggling. So. Um, I have always advocated that you know the one of the fundamental roles of government at any level is to assure that there is a safety net for all of our citizens and there's there's really no more important function than that one. Those numbers that you're making reference to they couldn't have include included uh donations to religious organizations. Because right. Yeah, okay. Right. right okay. Right. Go ahead. Um just kind of following on there, I, I heard a story a couple of days ago on All Things Considered where they were interviewing people who were very stressed and I can't remember what the city was. It was in another state but a, a, uh, an industrial city that mm-hmm. had the plant – the auto plant had closed down and this family was having a hard time and, and each month before the welfare check came out that – one part of the family was living on. Another family member across town would come over and bring a, an empty bag and bring some groceries back from the other family and they were all on welfare. I mean it, they were really – and they were, they were talking about how they had to scrimp to get by and yet none of them talked about setting their sights on how they could do better in the future because they're so concerned with just surviving today. And I think one of the things that – the, that government at all levels could do substantially more to help raise people up over the long run rather than just helping them get by at the bottom of the economic ladder is to provide training opportunities, to support training opportunities and to make programs available for people who in some cases never got halfway through school, much less finished it. Mm-hmm. In other cases, maybe they had more education but they, they uh, haven't put it to good use. Uh, in terms of, of jobs, but to give them the skills that could at least give them a, a sustainable living um, as part of a program. It might take several years for a given individual to get to some level where they could hold down a, a job paying twice the minimum wage, let's say. I mean we're not talking about $50 an hour jobs necessarily, although that would be great if they can get there. But education, whether we're talking formal education in the K-12 level or higher education or or vocational training – is such an essential part of people being able to eventually get off of the kinds of support that they depend so so importantly on in the present and to be contributing more to support those others who still need that help. Jerry's getting to one of the real big issues here and and you know that's how do we end poverty? I mean how how do we change this and you know poverty is a numbing experience. It, it can't be described adequately by statistics. Um, if a family is not sure, for example, we have the first of the month coming up now in, in less than two weeks. If they're not sure um, how they're going to pay the rent on the first, uh, those wonderful opportunities that exist in our community for doing something to further that family are the farthest things from their mind right now. It's how am I going to scrape together the rent money? How am I going to keep my children fed? How will we have the money for gas in the car so my husband can get to work? Those are the things that take priority. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a, it's a numbing um, experience. Uh, one of the things that we have to work with people on and it's a long-term process. There's no no timetable on it is – helping people recover their ability to dream. So many folks have lost uh, that ability, uh, live with a sense of hopelessness and despair that things can't get better and I don't know what to do to get better. 
Uh, that's really the challenge to me in terms of, of social programming and, and really ending poverty in any meaningful way. Well, when you have no cushion, you have very such very limited options that I think that you just kind of have to self self train to think in a, a more um, uh, practicable way, and and you can't think big because, as you said, it's Maslow's hierarchy uh, at work. And yet, Jerry's exactly right. I mean, the the ticket or one of the big tickets out is education. I mean, one of the things that strikes me um, continually and has for years and years is the educational deficits that many of the folks have that we work with, and. Um, you're dead in this economy without mm-hmm. without the proper education, without the proper skills. Yet, again, that challenge of trying to move forward uh, while meeting the basic needs of your family today is really is really the nub of it. Of the twelve or thirteen percent of people that we're talking about right now, um, we haven't talked about how many of those people have real mental health or or other health issues that are preventing them. Um, from getting the kind of employment that would make it possible for them to climb out of the situation that they're in right now. About what percentage of those folks do you think are? Excellent question. Um, I mean the research varies everywhere around the country and um, I would say at the Shalom Community Center, uh, there's no question that we see uh, a higher prevalence of chronic health conditions. Uh, people living with heart disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, mm-hmm. many of the chronic conditions. Um, and their ability to manage those is limited because of their impoverished state. Uh, mental health and addictions, particularly with respect to homelessness, the relationship there can be a significant issue. Um, nationally, maybe 25 percent to 30 percent uh, for adults is what the research typically shows. And we, we had an email that came in and I apologize for not getting to it sooner. So I'm going to need a short answer. It's I was so interested by what everybody was saying. I forgot about this. But um, and Jerry, this might be a good question for you. Would you comment on the connection to poverty of the lack of membership in a labor union or discrimination and or discrimination in wage and benefit partners? Um, for example, the non-provision of domestic partner benefits by private and public employers. That's a tough question to try to come up with a, a concise answer to. Yeah, um, right. Unions have provided strong benefit packages for generations in Indiana and other parts of the country. Unfortunately, union membership, from unfortunately from that perspective, has been declining uh, substantially and many former strong union jobs exist, existed in plants that no longer are employing people. The GE plant is a good example here and several others. Uh, those people wind up needing more support than they can afford anymore because those benefit packages are gone. Um, and uh, I don't remember the other part of the question, but it's a tough one to answer, so yeah. I'll okay. turn it back to you. <laughs> I, that was my bad. Sorry. We'd like to thank everybody for joining us this week on New Edition, primarily our guests, Brooke Gentile, Joel Rikas, and Jerry Conover. I'd like to thank engineer Michael Pashkash, as well as producer Ariana Prothero, Mary Catherine Carmichael. Nice to finally be with you for a program. And you. This <laughs> has been uh, my pleasure. Thanks for joining us in New Edition. We'll talk to you again next week. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at wfiu.org.